0: Matthew 25, 14-30 and then Ian's going to come up and preach this is Jesus talking here, this is the parable of the talents for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property to one he gave five talents to another two, to another one to each according to his ability then he went away, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more so also he who had the two talents made two talents more here, ha- you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and scatter where I sc- and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you have ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he who will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth.
1: Good morning, Dora Hope. Is this thing on? Can you hear me? Sweet. I'm bringing that because I might fall down. I might need it. Oh, well, it's good to see you all. My name is Ian. For anybody who does not recognize me, I'm one of the pastors here at of Hope. I'm glad to uh, see you all here. It's good to have all of us together. Uh, I assume that your Bibles are already open, so I'm going to catch up with you all, and we're going to get into Matthew 25. Before uh, we begin this parable, join me, real quick, for just one more one more word of prayer before we before we start this. Jesus, thank you, thank you for yourself. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your pursuit of us. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for for doing what is good for us even when we don't see it, we don't understand it, we don't expect it and maybe at times don't even want it. Lord, thank you for for moving past our obstinance and doing what is is life giving to us. Thank you for coming to earth and for dying for our sins. Thank you for that act of love. Lord, I pray that as I'm up here today, that I would step aside, that I would have no opinions, that I would have no preferences, that I would have nothing to say except for what is in your word and that you, by your sovereignty, would communicate to individual hearts what it is that they need to hear. There is a lot in this text. There is a lot to learn. There is a lot to to be aware of. And there is a lot to apply. And there's a lot to know. And so Lord, give me the words. Thank you that we can come here at all. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you for being with us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. So as I was preparing for this parable, it dawned on me that I needed to take, I felt like I need as I was praying over it and I was considering what it is that Jesus is saying in this parable, because I only ever want to say what is in the text, whether it's easy to hear whether it's hard to hear I do not care it is not my business my job is to preach the word of God amen and as I was going over this text I thought there's there's something that Jesus is saying in the parable and we need to take heed of it we need to listen to it it is a warning but it is also hopeful it is also beautiful but it's it's a it's a loving wake-up call and so what, what is in the, te- the parable itself, what is in the text, is something that we will consider and something that we will learn from. But there's not just that. As I was reading, you know me, the whole context of what's going on here, I realized that not only is Jesus teaching something with the very parable itself, but he's also teaching something by telling the parable at all. There's a reason why he's telling this parable. He's teaching something specifically with the parable, but he's also teaching something just by virtue of him telling a parable whatsoever. And we need, we need to look at that because he's, he's drawing a line in the sand and he's telling people to pay attention. He's, he's giving a teaching about what the kingdom of God is, that's in the parable, but he's also teaching about when The kingdom of God is and that's something that the people that he's speaking to did not understand they thought that they did they were sure that they knew explicitly what the kingdom of God looked like how it was going to come about and they expected it to happen now they expected it to happen within I mean maybe the next few months if if I mean at the most maybe a year or two they thought the kingdom of God is going to happen in our lifetime the way that we conceive of it and so we need to talk about all that because the first thing that Jesus is doing is he's responding to a question. And he's, he's rewriting people's expectations. He's telling them, listen, this isn't what you think it's going to be. And this isn't going to happen when you think that it's going to happen. And so the first thing that I want to distinguish between is the kingdom of God itself. What, what is that? We've talked about this before within the parables. A lot of these parables that we've gone through specifically begin with the kingdom of God is like this The kingdom of God is characterized by these sorts of virtues, by these sorts of morals, by this sort of standard. And, there's, and the distinction here is that Jesus will sometimes teach of the kingdom of God as it is consummated. That is the kingdom of God in its completion. At the end of time, whenever Jesus returns, we either die and go to heaven or Jesus Christ comes and takes us to be with him and the kingdom is complete. No more sin, no more crying, no more pain. The former things have passed away, Revelation 21.4. It's a new heavens and it's a new earth. That is not what Jesus is specifically talking about in this parable exactly. He does talk about it in just a few verses from here he goes on to say in verse 31, speaking in another parable, he says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all of the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another. As a, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right, and he will put the goats on his left... And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. That's the kingdom consummated. What Jesus is referring to here is the kingdom of God as it is on earth, which is a, one of my favorite ideas, one of my favorite images in scripture is the, is the reality of the now and not yet kingdom. There's, there's tastes. There's a, there's a foretaste. There's a, there's a sense. There's realities of the kingdom of God that are here presently, but it's not complete. It's still coming. It's still coming to fruition, and Jesus says that here in this kingdom, here on earth now, there will be wheat among the tares. There will be houses that do not have foundations. There will be those who have lamps but no oil in them. The sheep and the goats will be together. Even obedience to scripture will be motivated by selfishness and greed a lot of the time. There'll be wedding guests who are not with the proper garments. Here, the kingdom is incomplete. There 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 are Christians living on planet Earth and there are people on planet Earth who are not Christians. So there's a sense of the kingdom. God has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us inside of our very souls. And so the kingdom of God is very much a real presence here. Through himself, through his kingdom, he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The sun to fall or to shine onto the, to, to the wicked and the good. There is elements of God's kingdom here, but it's not complete. And Jesus is talking about that here. And this was, this was mind-boggling to The disciples, they didn't understand this. This was mind-boggling to the people that were listening to what Jesus was saying here. And this is all provoked by a question. There's a handful of parables right here in chapter 24 and chapter 25. There's parable after parable after parable. And the provocation of that is a question that's asked in chapter 24, verse 3 says this, and as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus goes on from there and we land where we are today in chapter 25 starting in verse 14. What is the sign? When is this going to happen? Tell us the details. And if you read from chapter 24 verse 3 on, what you see is that Jesus answers half that question. He, he gives signs, he gives details. He says, be aware of the signs and the symptoms. Pay attention to what's going on. But the day and the hour specifically, he says, no one knows. And he says it a lot. He says it several times in a row. He says it in verse 36, but on the day and the hour, listen to this, on the day and the hour specifically, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son knows, but the Father alone. He says in 24 verse 42, for you do not know the day which the Lord is coming. Verse 44, (laughs) the son of man is coming in an hour that you do not think. Verse 50, this will happen in an hour that you do not know. And 25, verse 13, therefore stay awake for you do not know the day or the hour. And you think that by now the guys would have gotten it and they do not. They do not get it. Because they're holding on to their expectations here. And what I wanna spend maybe the first 20, 25 minutes making a point of is that these guys had specific expectations they had desires they had hopes they had dreams they had ambitions and Jesus comes and just crashes into all of those and does not give them what they think they want he doesn't give them what they expect and this is this is a problem because what we see throughout the gospels is that when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, John chapter 12, y'all need to come to the evening service because we're going through the Gospel of John and it is awesome. And we've, we, just, we just are passing over what I'm mentioning right now. Jesus comes into Jerusalem in John chapter 12 and you know what happens. He's riding on a donkey and thousands and thousands of people are hailing him as the king. They're laying down robes before him. They're waving palm branches, which was a Hebrew way of of declaring victory. Victory is going to come. The kingdom is coming. It's going to happen now. But in chapter 19, a text that we're specifically going through this very evening at 6 p.m., come. Those same people, many of them, are crying out for Jesus' blood. Those very same people are say, say to Pilate, the Roman governor, give us Barabbas, the murderer and the insurrectionist, and you can take Jesus and crucify him on a cross. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that they actually cried out, let his blood be on our head and on the heads of our children. What happened? What changed? And that was a transition of just a few days. And what happened is that Jesus was not the king that they thought that he was going to be. He did not fit their, their idea. He did not fit their preference and so they killed him. And so this in part this is a warning to his true followers. Watch out for what you expect. Do not rely on your expectations. Listen to what Jesus actually says. Read your Bibles and find out who Jesus actually is. Who is he to you? You know, I grew up in the church and no one once ever looked me in the wide of my eyes and said, "Who is Jesus to you?" Is he is he God? Is he a prophet? Is he a nice guy? Is he a moral teacher? Is he your Lord and Savior, King of the universe? Or is he a nightlight, just someone who makes you feel good about the days when they're dark? Who is he to you? No one ever asked me that, and I'm asking you that today. Who is Jesus? Is he a means to an end? Because what we see here throughout the Gospels and what we see here in the teaching of this parable is that People had an idea that Jesus was the means to an end. They expected the kingdom of God to come and look like political overthrow. They expected the Messiah to come in, sit on the throne of David with, short, with sword and shield and spear and overthrow the Roman oppression. They, expect, they expected blood and they expected violence. They expected carnage if, if need be. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get these Romans off of our back. Jesus has raised people from the dead. He turned water into wine. That was a particular crowd favorite. He's been teaching prophecy. He heals people of disease and of illness. This is the guy who's going to overthrow the Romans. Who else could it possibly be? Did you see what he did with Lazarus? This is him. Hail the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they cried out for his blood. They were expecting a Daniel chapter 7 kind of kingdom coming over kingdom and coming over kingdom, war and violence and blood and carnage and destruction, and then claiming victory and sitting on a, sitting on a, on a throne with a crown and a scepter. And his disciples thought that they were going to be a part of that, that party of dignity and of influence and of power. That's what they expected that's what they thought. And in a parable very similar to this one, almost identical to this one in Luke chapter 19, we're actually told specifically that Jesus tells the parable of the 10 minas. Some of you might be familiar with it. We haven't covered it here. But in John or excuse me, in Luke 19, we read this in verse 11. Now, while they were listening to these things that Jesus was teaching, Jesus went on to tell a parable Listen to this. He went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Jesus is near Jerusalem. Now is the time. Sharpen your spear. Get ready. Start running laps. Start doing push-ups. We're going to war. It's going to happen. And so Jesus tells them a parable. A parable very similar to this, which is sit down, quiet, quiet. Wait. Forget about your preferences for a minute. Forget about what you expect. Forget about what you want and listen to what God is saying. I don't think that we do that enough. I think that a lot of us, even without really meaning to, treat Jesus like this. We treat Jesus as a means to an end. He's the guy that's six foot eight that can reach up and grab something that we can't and then he hands it to us and we go thank you and we take our toy and we go off. We want the kingdom. We want health. We want family. We want relationship. We want whatever it is and we think... That Jesus is the means to get those things. And then whenever our life doesn't go the way that we plan, whenever the kingdom doesn't come about the way that we expect, we say off with his head, let his blood be on, on our heads and on the heads of our children, never mind. And maybe it's not that graphic in your mind, maybe it's not that dramatic, but that's essentially what we do. We abandon him and we prove that all along we were idolatrous and we were treating him as a genie, which he is not. He is the God of the universe. Amen. And so what he's doing here is he's rearranging expectations because if these guys are thinking wrongly, if they're expecting wrongly, then their unmet expectations may cause them to lose hope and to lose faith in him. And that is the greatest mistake that any human can ever make. This was so buried into their minds. Pretty graphic story. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is predicting not that he's going to start an army not that he's going to run for political office he starts predicting his death he starts predicting his betrayal he starts saying things like the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners and he's going to be mocked he's going to be beaten he's going to be killed and then he's going to rise three days later from the dead and they didn't catch that last part they heard the mocking they heard the beating they heard the humiliation they heard the arrest and they freaked out because this did not fit their agenda can anybody relate to that what is that? <laughs> I don't know what that was. Can anyone relate to that? But Jesus, I thought that this was how my life was supposed to go. Or who, who do we submit to? Do we submit to our own preferences? Do we submit to our own will? There's a there's a challenge here. Do you see this? There's some really good news here in this parable, and there's also a challenge. There's also a wake-up call. Jesus started predicting that things were going to happen in a way that the disciples did not expect. And in Matthew 16, Peter gets in Jesus' face and tells him that what the greatest thing in the entire universe that's ever gonna happen for sinners should not happen, right? Peter gets in Jesus' face and he says, never, this will never happen. And Jesus, I mean, this is, this is serious. Jesus says something serious. He says something fairly aggressive. He probably grabs onto Peter's shoulders and he says, get behind me, Satan. And he goes on from there, he says, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me because what? You have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. That is a profound statement. How many of us miss out on Jesus because we have in mind our own desires and we cannot let it go? No matter how many times we hear it preached, no matter how many times we read about it in commentaries or listen to it in sermons, No matter how many times maybe we just flat out learn the lesson through life experience, our expectations and our desires and our wishes are so buried deep in us that we cannot let them go. And I know that this happens because even after his death and his burial and his resurrection, Thomas, put your hands in my hands, feel the holes, put your fingers in my side, after all of that, Acts chapter one, Jesus is just about to ascend into heaven and the, the disciples and the people there look at him and say, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? Is the, is the time now? Now that we got that whole cross thing out of the way, can we deal with the Romans? And Jesus says, no, that's not the way that this works. And so as I was preparing for this, I saw that and I realized, you know what? What Jesus is doing here, not only is he teaching a parable, But he's teaching us something just by telling us the parable. And we're a few parables deep. This is the parable right after the parable of the ten virgins, which we covered a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago. And that parable was about what? It was about wedding guests waiting for the bridegroom to show up. This is about servants who are waiting, verse 19, for a long time the master is gone. After a long time, the master returns, which is a hint. This isn't going to happen fast. This isn't gonna happen the way that you expect. This isn't gonna happen the way that you even really want. Do you trust the Lord with your life? Do you trust him with the things that are happening? If you're here this morning and you're a Christian and there are things that are going on in your world that you are absolutely bamboozled about, do you trust his wisdom? Do you believe that he is good even whenever there is a storm on the sea? Do you believe that he is good even when you visit someone in hospice, maybe somebody that you know? You know, tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of my dad's passing. And I've been thinking about it all week. And my wife's gone, so I'm by myself in an empty house thinking about my dad passing. And you know what? Honestly, I worship when I think about my dad passing because I, I trust the Lord. Thank God he's trustworthy. And we're gonna see that. This parable teaches us that. Do we trust the Lord when things happen that we do not expect? Do we, what happens when Jesus challenges you? Somebody asked me that, somebody did ask me that question. Nobody asked me who Jesus was to me, but later in life, somebody wisely asked me, what happens when Jesus disagrees with you? Do you go with what you think is best? Throw your Bible away? Pursue your own wisdom? Or do you bow the knee to King Jesus? And sometimes bowing the knee, the knee just means enduring in faith and in trust that he is not malevolent, that he has not forgotten about you, but that he is good and something is working together. And the beauty of the gospels is that we see the beauty of our Jesus is that his proof, he has proven to us that no matter how bad and dark it gets, he is good. He proved it because he lived it because he was handed over, he was betrayed. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends, ostensibly. He was tortured, he was mutilated, and he was killed on a cross for our sins. He who knew no sins became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He came so that the gospel might be. And so he's telling us, not only is the answer no, but ironically, you're actually going to be used to do some of the very work that does bring the kingdom of God more and more to the world it will never be complete this side of heaven but God the Spirit comes alive inside of us and we become Jesus people we read the scriptures, we're told how to live, we're told how to think we're told what to do and Jesus says you are salt and you are light go out and proclaim the gospel, Matthew 28 to every creature baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded we can start with, with doing that yeah? So he tells this parable. He tells this parable because he's trying to get these guys to think differently. He's informing them of what the kingdom is like. And he's telling them that the kingdom, the kingdom as they understand it is not going to be it. It's not going to be war. It's not going to be violence. Peter tried. Remember? And Jesus is betrayed. Peter pulls a sword and he goes for Malchus's neck. And he misses and lobs off his ear. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, thanks for having my back. He rebukes Peter. He says, "Put your sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword." If Jesus, or if, if Peter had succeeded in chopping off Malchus's head, the Romans would have killed him right then and there. So Jesus tells this parable. It was like a man who went out on a journey and called his own slaves and handed over his possessions to them. And to the one he gave five talents, and to another he gave two, and to another he gave one, each according to their ability. And he went on a journey. And immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more. In the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more. What we see here, the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of, the talents are right on top of each other because no parable is comprehensive for everything. What Jesus is telling us in the parable of the virgins, which for anybody who was not here, anybody who doesn't know, the parable of the 10 virgins tells a story of of 10 women who are waiting outside for the bridegroom to come so that they might get into a wedding feast, but only five of them have oil in their lamps. And they're not welcomed into the party unless they have oil in their lamps. And so whenever the bridegroom finally shows up in the middle of the night, a time that they did not expect, Five of them went, oh, man, I don't have any oil. Can I borrow some of yours? And the people going into the wedding said, no, go, go to the market and buy. And those five that did not have oil were left out of the party. And the teaching there is, do you have oil in your lamp, quote, unquote? Are you saved? Have you been born again? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior, or are you just playing church? They're very line-drawing parables are you saved? Who is Jesus to you? It means everything. Has He saved you? Do you believe in Him for the remission of sins? Is the propitiation? for all of the things that we've done wrong? Is God who loves us and sent his only son to die for us so that whosoever will believe in him and not, will not perish but have everlasting life? Or is Jesus just a, a prophet? And you like the church community, so you keep hanging out. Listen, we have to get real about who Jesus is. And whenever that, whenever you're born again, whenever you've been saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus Christ, not by works so that anyone will boast, but by God's grace, he took the sin He took the punishment on the cross so that we would never have to. And the perfect life that he lived in the flesh, he gives us that record so that we can be seen in Christ Jesus before Father God as holy and blameless and above reproach. Colossians 1 says that. That's a remarkable list. Holy and blameless and above reproach. It's unbelievable. I got here here at like 3 o'clock in the morning. That's why I'm kind of slurring my words and I brought that I got here early, I couldn't sleep, so I just got up and I came to work. And you know, I was reminded of the evil of my own heart and I, was, I had to remind myself of Colossians one. I had to remind myself of Jesus's blood. I had to remind myself of what he saved me from because I got here and I turned off my motorcycle and I heard this loud commotion. There was this noise and it took my ears a minute to adjust and I realized what was happening is right across the street in this house, they were having a bonafide house party at like 3.45 in the morning. Dozens of people out there shaking and baking. They had, I mean, there was bong smoke. I mean, the, the house itself smelled like it, it had been drinking. And, and I honestly, like, imagine this. Like, this is, this is the life of a Christian sometimes. Like, I love that stuff. There, that's what I did. I used to party until 4 o'clock in the morning in Portland, Oregon. I did it for years and years and years. There's a, there's, a, there's a lady here this morning who was one of my high school teachers who knew me then. My mom's here. She knew me then. And that, that was all that sin, all that rebellion, all that selfishness, it was paid for on the cross by Jesus so that I can be pure and blameless and above reproach. And still I saw that party and, I, and I'm, I'm sitting in front of the church where I work and my heart went, ooh, <laughs> mescaline. You know, I checked myself. Like that, that stuff doesn't just go away overnight. The, the Bible tells us that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit are at war with one another. And even though I recognized that wickedness in my heart in that moment, I mean, I wanted to get down and dirty. I wanted Molotov cocktails and tire fires for days in that moment. And I came inside, I put on a pot of coffee and I started reading my Bible and, and I got on my knees in this old office over here and just started praying to Jesus because I needed to remind myself of who I belong to, I needed to remind myself of what he did for me. He didn't save me from drugs and booze, he saved me from hell. But I still have this heart that needs to be reminded of his beauty, reminded of his grace, reminded of his love, and that in Jesus' blood, because of Jesus' life, the Father sees me as pure, holy, blameless, and above reproach. That is unbelievable to me. Because obviously my heart still has bends and kinks and dents. But Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save sinners. We can trust him. We can trust him. And so this master gives his slaves different talents depending on their ability. Some five, one five, one two, and one he gave one talent to. And what's really interesting about these talents, in, in the English language, we think of talent as being a skill or an ability that's sort of inherently in us. Uh, that's not what talent means here. Talent is, is actually the word talent on. It's, it's, a, it's a measure of weight. In the book of Revelation, it says that there will be hailstones. Revelation 16, 21, there will be hailstones that weigh a talent. And a talent could be a, a talent of money, could be gold, silver, or bronze, and in this case, it's most likely silver, because when Jesus says that the one who had one talent buried his master's money, the word for money there is the Greek word for silver, and when you have a talent of silver, do some math, it's about 20 years pay. 20 years for the average laborer, in one talent. It weighs about 100 to 125 pounds. And the master, we see, we see a, a clue of the master's wealth, we see a clue of the master's generosity, and we see a clue of the master's trust. And that's important because the master is going to be attacked by one of his servants. His character is going to be attacked. Five talents, 500 pounds of money. Take it and get busy. He gave two to another, take it and get busy. He gave one to another, take it and get busy. And immediately, verse 16, immediately the one who had received the five talents traded them and gained five more. The one who had received two talents gained two more. Whenever there's oil in our lamps, whenever God has saved our souls, when we, when we know, even though my heart is still full of temptations and wickedness, and there's this war that's going on that's just described in Galatians and described in 1 Peter, these these temptations that wage war against my soul. Jesus thinks of me as beautiful. The Father sees me as blameless and above reproach. When you get that, you'll do what he tells you. When you get that, you will give your life to him, not out of obligation, not because you want to get something more than him. You want some kingdom that's beyond him. You just want him. And I want more of that. I want, I want to want Jesus more. And so I have to preach the gospel to myself daily. And whatever it is that he's given me, I want to get to work. And so what has he given to you? What is in your, your bag of talents? Are you a five? Are you a two? Are you a one? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. We're called to be, to be faithful with whatever we have. And some of us have PhDs in, in, in different uh, studies of theology. Some of us are bosses. Some of us are, are bricklayers. And some of us are first grade teachers. What do you have? What does he bless you with? you have air in your lungs and blood in your veins? You have two hands, you've got some money that you could, money is a great way to do God's work. Money is a great way to go and proclaim the kingdom of God to the world, to proclaim the gospel. Some of you do an amazing job every single week. The volunteers that we have here who come and they do coffee. They come and they, they watch over the kiddos downstairs. They help clean up. They help set up. They lock the doors. They make sure that people are greeted with a smile and with a handshake and a hug when they walk in the door. They make this place feel like a welcome home. What do you have? It doesn't have to be grandiose. You know, I, I, as I was studying for this, I, I wasn't there, but I read a story by somebody who was there about this time that Billy Graham was visiting Minneapolis, and he was preaching to a group of people who worked for one of the, one of the locations that, uh, that was a Billy Graham location. I don't really know much about Billy Graham other than you know basically what everybody knows. But there was a location where people were doing Billy Graham work. They were helping him in his business. And he was, pre- he was preaching to this large group of people. And he said, I am convinced that many of you are going to receive more fruit than even I am. I think that there are, I am convinced that there are many of you in this room who are doing your jobs more faithfully than even I am. You don't have to be Billy Graham. You don't have to plant a church. You don't have to you'd be this, this preacher who, who goes around the world and proclaims the gospel to millions and millions and millions of people. Like my my wife very soon is gonna be a stay-at-home mom. That's the bag of talents that she's been given. I think that most of us in this room probably have a bigger bag of talents than we really realize because we have the Bible. Do you realize that not everybody has one of these? I've got Bibles in my house that I've lost. You know what I mean? It's a tragedy. There's people who do not have access to the scriptures and everything that we need to know. Is right here. Everything that we need to know about how to live, everything that we need to need to know for even our own sanctification, our own growth in righteousness and holiness and maturity and becoming conformed more and more and more daily to the very image of Jesus Himself. Everything that we need to know is right here, and I know for the Bible tells me so. Second Timothy three sixteen says this: All Scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the so that the man or woman of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everything that we need to know is right here. And how often do we just let our Bibles collect dust? I grew up in a church with a, a, young, a young girl who would get really upset if you ever set your Bible on the ground. And I always thought that she was such a prude. But as I've gotten older, I'm like, you know what? She had respect for the word of God. Shame on me. I did not have respect for the word of God. We don't know. People died so that we could have this word of God in the English language. Everything we need to know is right here. And I don't know specifically what your talents are. But you have access to biblical teaching. You have access to the Bible. You have access to the Bible project. You have access to commentaries and to studies. I mean, get into that. Learn what the Bible has to say. Read. A, a book every day. Some of, the, some of the epistles in here are small. Read it every day. I read Colossians for like six months straight one time and I still don't know the whole thing. There's so much depth in God's word and we've been gifted with it. Do we, do we realize that? This is a huge bag of talents right here. What are we doing with it? What are we doing with it? What are you doing with it? I can't answer that question for you. I spent most of my life neglecting it and I'm honored and I'm privileged to be able to preach from it every Sunday Jesus said even one who gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones will in no way lose the reward it doesn't have to be something huge but do you show the love of Christ to the world around you do you present the gospel do you push the gospel forward if you, if you lo- I, I, I will posit that if you, if you know Jesus and if, if you love him and if you understand the hell that he saved you from, if you understand the weight that he took on the cross in your stead, in your place, then you will say yes and you will immediately get to work, whatever that is, whatever that is for you. And what we see in the servant who did not do this, what we see in the servant who hid the talent, what we see in the servant who got scared and did nothing is that he didn't know the master. He didn't know his master's character. He didn't know who he was dealing with. And then one day, verse 19, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came and brought five more, saying, Master, you handed me five talents. See, I have gained five more talents. And his master said, listen to this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Listen to the wealth of this master. The guy with five talents has 500 or more pounds of money. And the master's like, You've been good with trinkets. Now let's get you a real job. (laughs) 20 years pay times five, that ain't nothing. That ain't nothing. Friends, the heaven that we have to look forward to is beyond comprehension. It's beyond our wildest imagination. The, The Bible says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what the Lord has prepared for them. Do you know that you have hope? You have hope if you are saved you're safe if you are saved. You are secure if you are saved. But this this parable also calls into question: Are you pretending to be a servant of the master? Do you even know him? Because he gets he gets to the to the to the, to the, to the slave. The word is doulas. To the slave that hid his talent, and that talent, and that and that slave said, "I knew that you were a hard man." And that you were reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and I went away and I hid your talent in the ground. So see here, what you have, it is yours. And the master answered him, you wicked and lazy slave. If you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed, then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. We have just learned that the generosity, the trust that this master has, how he says to his servants like this, was a, this was a culture where they had slaves. There's a, there's a cultural disconnect here. And this master is saying to his servant, come into my home, come to my table. No lo- you don't be outside, you are welcome, you are taking on the family name, you are in my very residence, you're with me. This is not a vindictive, mean, ugly, greedy capitalist master. He gave thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to his servants, told them what to do, and their love for him manifested in work, their inner burden for him manifested in an external work. And I want to be very clear, we are not saved by works, hear that. Heaven is not is not attained by merit. Jesus is not marking down, waiting for you to act right. Listen, man, I'll, I'll get you your money eventually, dude. I swear. Listen, just two more weeks. Two more weeks. Yeah, you're lucky. <laughs> you're right. You're walking away. That's awesome. Virgil's out for blood, man. I'm telling you what. (laughs) Oh, where was I? (laughs) Master, I knew that you were a hard man. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. The servant proves that he doesn't know the master. We're not saved by works. That's what I was. Jesus is not writing things down, waiting for you to get it straight. He's not writing things down, waiting for you to stop making mistakes or to do enough so that you are then qualified to be in the kingdom. He qualified you with His very life. He on the cross said, It is finished. He took the payment for sins. It's done. His life was the perfect life. And he's not there waiting for you. And whenever you get that, you'll just, you'll just give your life back to him. It will be natural. It will be what you do. And we see in the third servant that he just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand who the master really is. And so he's making excuses. He says, well, I couldn't do it because I was scared. Listen. Jesus, in his love, he knows that we're going to make mistakes. He knows that we're fallible. He knows that we're not going to be perfect. And he still chooses us to do the kingdom work while we're here. I don't know why, but I've learned not to argue with him. He knows that we're going to fail. His grace is new every morning. He knows that we're still going to trip up on sin. 1 John tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. He is so good, He has saved us from so much. He has given us such an inheritance. Come enter into the joy of of your master. I mean, we don't deserve that. And he's saying, but this can be real for you. This can be true for you. Do you know who I am? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you really? You can go study other religions. You can go study other faith assumptions. There is no other God, (laughs) real or imagined, who comes down and pulls us up. Every other religion expects you to do what, what this third guy thinks. Like, well, I, I've got to earn it. And if I mess up, I mean, if, if, you know what, though? If I don't even try, I can't fail. Aha, modern problems, modern solutions. That's what I'm going to do. If I don't commit, then I don't have to forget. I just forget about it. But what he's proving there, by making excuses, by attacking the master, is that he doesn't know the master. He doesn't trust the master. And the master calls him on his bluff in the parable. It says, if you knew that I was this kind of guy who, who gathered where I did not scatter and, and, and I took what wasn't mine, then you would, have at very, you would have at the very least put my money in the bank to receive interest. You're not, you're not scared, you just don't care. You don't care and it's evidenced by your laziness. You don't care and it's evidenced by the fact that you're lying about who I am. And I wanna, I wanna talk specifically as, I, as, I, as I'm starting to, to land this today, I wanna talk to you specifically, if you were here this morning and you, you really like, and you really struggle with knowing who God is, because I have to tell you friends, I, I struggled with that for years. And some of you who have heard my story, many of you who have sat down with me and we've shared a coffee or a meal, you know, that I struggled not with believing that God existed. I struggled with knowing who He was. I I honestly thought I don't remember if I if I described this on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening. If you all came to Sunday evening, then I wouldn't have to remember. But I re, I actually I thought about it. I, I I like I sat down one day and I started thinking and writing out what was what did I think about God. What did I think his character was like? What did I believe about him that caused me to rebel? And in a word, what I, what I believed, for whatever reason, maybe it's because I'm an orphan. Maybe it's because of some like, memory that I blocked out that I can't remember. I don't know why because my parents were not totalitarians. They weren't, they weren't mean. I don't know where I got the idea, but I used to just believe that God was a bully You know, and he would send a hurricane and he would send COVID and he would send these things to just mess with people. You know, like he had a magnifying glass and he was just burning ants and he got sort of this sadistic joy out of it. I don't know where I got that idea, but very much what this guy is describing here. You're just this greedy capitalist who's forcing people to do stuff and then you take all the money, you sit back and puff on a cigar and shine your shoes and you don't care about people. I believe that. Friends, that is a lie from hell. And I'll end here. You know, how, you know how I know we can trust him? You know how I know that he's generous and that he's wealthy and that we can trust him no matter what it is that's going on is because he had everything. What does he have? What, what's, the, what's the bag of talents that Jesus has? He has the entire cosmos. He is God. God. We're told in Philippians that he emptied himself of everything. He humbled himself to the point of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus stepped out of heaven, laid his crown aside, didn't even know somehow in the beautiful mystery of the Trinitarian Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity, never created, never came into being, ultimate essence of reality, essence of life. Jesus humbled himself, took on human form, lived a human existence and didn't even know when the kingdom was going to come. He somehow cut himself off from that omniscience. He got tired, he got hungry, he got thirsty, he experienced humanity, he was mutilated half to death and then was successfully killed on a cross. Taking on the shame, taking on the punishment, and he did it because he loves you. He did it so that he can say to you, enter into your master's house, enter into your master's boat for all of eternity. When you get that, you will give your life to him. And it may not look grandiose, but that's what's so rad is that he gave the guy with one talent a chance. The guy with two talents, he got two more. And the master's response was, well, why didn't you make five talents? The other guy did. He doesn't, we can't always, we can't force fruitfulness. But we can be faithful. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Not well done, good and brilliant. Not well done, good and strong. Not well done, good and consistent. Not well done, good and industrious. He says, well done, good and faithful. Give your lives to him. Repent of your sins, believe the gospel and be saved and spend the rest of your life struggling and trying and failing with with community, with prayer, with Bible studies, learning scripture, finding out more and more and more about who this Jesus is and engaging more and more in repentance and more and more in becoming the kind of person that he's conforming you to be, which is in the image of his son. It's not an issue of salvation. It's an issue of worship. If you are saved, you will just change because his grace is that magnificent. It changes you. We can trust him. He is good. He had everything and he let it go. He put it aside for us. It's one of my favorite Bible verses, Luke 19, 10. Jesus says, here's here's the character of, of the father. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, fear not, little flock. You know how many times Jesus says fear not? I I don't know. I haven't counted. But it's a lot. He says fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's our God. That's our Jesus. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Jesus, thank you again for today. Thank you that Virgil didn't hurt me. Thank you for sustaining us thank you for thank you for giving us talents thank you for giving us giftings and skills whether we're artists whether we're tradesmen whether we're stay at home moms and dads whether we're bakers whether we're bricklayers whatever we are Lord even if we're physically incapable of working what just Lord show us show us what it is that you have given us give us hearts that submit to you. Give us hearts that are in love with you more and more and more every day. Give us hearts that want to worship you with everything that we do. No matter what it is that we're capable of, no matter what it is that we do for work or for recreation, Lord, show us how to do kingdom work in our everyday lives. Thank you for rewarding our faithfulness and being patient with us as we fail. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our perfect propitiation. Thank you for seeing us with his righteousness and inspire us, Lord, to continue in this life day by day with that hope of the kingdom that is ahead of us, that you have prepared for us before the foundation of the world. I pray this morning, Lord, for anyone who is here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would convict their hearts, that you would send the power of the Holy Spirit into them, that you would convict them of sin, that they would come to repentance, that they would come to conversion and that they would say Jesus is Lord today and for the rest of their lives thank you Jesus for your love it is in your name that we pray amen hey friends this is Russ Lacey one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast thanks for listening to this teaching we always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to doorofhopepdx.org and click give from the menu bar. May God bless you.